We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. So if you want to go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 17. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one of the Bibles on the back of the pew in front of you. Um, if you don't have a Bible and you could use one, let us know and we'd be glad to get you one. You can t- I mean, if you need one right now, you can have that one right there on the back of the pew. We want you to have God's Word. Um, if you want a- another kind or another type, let us know. We'd be glad to get that to you. While you're finding that, I want to ask you to imagine something with me for a moment. Imagine that for you, you were an orphan. And after waiting for a very, very long time, you're finally adopted into a family. For you, if you're in that situation, it could very well be that you have nothing except for the clothes on your back. Now, I know these days, usually, there's more support, there's more things that can be had, but maybe you're in a situation where that's all that you would have. And you go, and you're with this new family, and they give you something that maybe you've not had before, clothes that fit like they're supposed to, that are new, that haven't been worn by someone else before. But imagine you have those things and you've been given those things, but you choose to never put them on. Why would you do that? If you find yourself in that situation, why, why do you think that maybe someone would not put them on? We look at them and we say, listen, this is yours. You can have it now. It's good for you to have these things. Well, maybe the reason is that you don't know that you have them. You can't comprehend clothes that are mine, that fit, that are new, that are different, that are not the same thing every single day. Maybe you don't know that you're allowed to go into that closet and get them. Or maybe, for you, you don't understand that you're a part of the family and this is yours now. We're going to see this morning, as we look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, and going through 5.5, I know it's a big section, but we're going to, I'm going to go through it quickly. That for us, we're part of God's family now. And that brings something new. New garments to put on. And that's not the physical clothes that you wear. But it's something that's spiritual. So let's read. And I'm not going to read it all in one fell swoop. We're going to take it a chunk at a time. We're going to read 17 through 24 to get us started. Paul says this. Therefore, I say this and testify in the Lord... You should no longer live as the Gentiles live, in the futility of their thoughts. They are darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God, because of the ignorance that is in them, and because of the hardness of their hearts. They became callous and gave themselves over to promiscuity for the practice of every kind of impurity, with a desire for more and more. But that is not how you came to know Christ. Assuming you heard about him and were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. To take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires. To be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self. The one created according to God's likeness and righteousness and purity of the truth. This is God's inerrant, infallible, all-sufficient word. Let's pray. Well, Father, our prayer is that as we sang this morning, that your word would be a lamp into our feet and a light into our path, Lord. Or maybe for us, 
our path has not been illuminated lately by your word, may it this morning be a hundred watt bulb or even more shining there, showing us the way that we should walk and live and do and be and think. Convict us where we need conviction. Encourage us where we need encouragement. Make us like Christ. By your word this morning we pray. Amen. Our main idea this morning is this. The gospel empowers us to put off sinful habits and to put on Christ-likeness. I'll say it again for you. The gospel empowers us to put off sinful habits and to put on Christ-likeness. So we see here this first thought, the first paragraph, at least in the CSB, is to put off sin, verses 17 through 22. Here's what he says. You are not a Gentile anymore. Well, this can be confusing, right? Because for probably the vast majority of us in here, maybe every single one of us in here, ethnically, we're Gentiles. Ethnically, we're not Jewish people. But Paul's talking to them and he's saying, you're not a Gentile anymore. He doesn't mean that somehow their DNA changed. He means that spiritually something new happened. They have been given this new life. And no longer is their understanding darkened. He says the Gentiles, they're darkened in their understanding, but not you, Christian. He says they're excluded from the life that comes from God, but not you, Christian. He says their heart is hard and callous. And it gives you over to do whatever it is you want to do. And he says, not you, Christian. But maybe you this morning, all those things that he says there, an understanding that's darkened, futile in thoughts, excluded from the life of God because of ignorance, and you have a hardness of heart, you're callous, and you do what you want to do, and you have this desire for more and more, and there's a greed that marks your life. And that's not just a money greed, that's just saying, I want to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, how I want to do it. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here, though, and you're not sure. You say, that, that sounds like me, but I've done some religious stuff in the past. I went to church with my grandma. I went to church growing up. I went to church camp one time. You say, so is that me or not? I think that I walked an aisle one time and signed a card, but I don't really think anything dramatically changed. What I hope that you'll do this morning, if that's you, is that you'll listen and hear what God says about what one of his people look like. And see if that describes you. And then see maybe what we should do in response to that. But it should be a concern for every single one of us if we live the same way that we did when we became a Christian, or before we became a Christian. If nothing ever changed. For me, if the way that I lived before Sarah and I got married, which is as a bachelor, right? And we know, I mean, I don't make any assumptions, but bachelors live a certain way, right? Like, they don't do the laundry all the time, and they may be a little bit smelly, and the dishes pile up and all that stuff, right? Any men testify here? Any women testify that once you got married, you had to break us of it? Yes? Okay. Absolutely. If I still live like a bachelor five and a half years into my marriage, is there a problem? Yes. <laughs> yes, and Sarah is going to be at the end of her rope with me. When we become Christians, we should have come to know Christ. And that doesn't just mean that we know about him. We have some kind of mental understanding about him. But it means to actually know him. To know who he is. We can't go into this all today. But there's so much about the idea of actually knowing someone in the Bible. To not just know about them, but to know them. 
In Romans, Paul says that God knew us before the foundation of the world. That's a knowing. He doesn't just know what's going to happen, but he has set his love upon us. There's something about knowing. We should know Christ, not just about him, but to truly know him. And if we know that, we are going to come away different. So he says that in verse 20. See, that's not how you came to know Christ, doing whatever you want to do, living the way you did before. Assuming that you heard about him and you were taught by him as the truth is in Jesus. He says then that what you need to do is take off your former way of life. He uses this language of taking something off. to Describe that which was on you before. And, and I hope that you were able to see that in the kids' message with Hadley as she put on that hoodie. And if you can imagine that hoodie being nasty and stinky and it's hot and it makes you sweaty out in the heat right now. To put on a new garment on top of that would be miserable. And it wouldn't work. It would not be a very good outfit, right? And it wasn't very fashionable to have a hoodie and a, and a, and a jersey on top of that. We have to take off the former way of life, the former way of living. Take it off, put it away, and stop doing it. But the question is, what does that look like? Because if you just take it off, that's not getting all the way there. We have to take that thing off and we have to put on Christ. So what does it mean to put on Christ? That's the question. We're going to see that here in verses 23 through 32. He says this, to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Putting on Christ means having a new spirit a new way of thinking. The big theological word for this is regeneration. The Holy Spirit makes you into a new person. This is the promise that God gave in Ezekiel whenever he tells Ezekiel that one day he's going to give his people a new heart and a new spirit. Our spirits of our minds are renewed. They're regenerated. We have new desires. And the new self that we have is one that looks like Christ. That's why it says it's Christ's likeness. And there's two ways that he does that. We look like Christ in our righteousness and in our purity of the truth at the end of verse 24 there. So righteousness is one thing. It's this right living. It's a state of being where we are doing the things that he has told us to do. And then there's a purity of the truth. And these things go together because see, a lot of times the reason we end up at unrighteousness is because we're not telling the truth about a situation. And here's what I mean. We look at our sin, and we don't tell ourselves the truth about it. We know what God's Word says about it. We say, you know what? I think God is just going to overlook this. There's a purity of the truth. Telling the truth to yourselves. You're not being like a Gentile who has this futile mind, futile thoughts, doing things that don't make sense, but you're being honest with yourself, and you're being honest with others. As we keep moving, we see six examples. And this is one of those things where it's really important to understand the structure of this text. If you don't sit here and analyze it, are you still going to get something out of it? Yeah. But to sit here and say, well, what exactly is happening in verses 25 through the end of the chapter, it's actually going to help us understand better what Paul is getting at. So he gives us these six examples, and here's how they work. He gives us this negative. He says, don't do this thing. Okay? So it's the negative thing. Say don't. Say don't. Don't, okay? And then he has this positive thing. He says do. Do. 
And then he says, the reason, because. Because, okay, see, you got it. So he says, don't, do, and because. Let's see what he says here. I'm going to read through them each one at a time. Therefore, putting away lying, speaking the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. So let's walk through this here and see what he's getting at. Put away lying. And that's our don't, right? Don't do this thing. Don't lie to one another. Put it away. Do speak the truth and love each one to his neighbor. And why? Because we're members of one another. Earlier in Ephesians, he talks about the fact that we are a body. We are the body of Christ. We are all united together in this one body and uses this picture of like a human body. He says that you're members of one another. And what he means is this. The members are like hands, fingers, feet, ears, eyes. You are one member of the whole body of God. So you're to speak the truth, Christian, to everyone. Speak it to everyone. Not just people who you want to know the truth, but to every single person who needs to know the truth. It means telling the truth to someone when they hurt you. And you're being willing to take the risk and go to them and say, listen, when you did this, it hurt me. And that's going to go a long way to creating Christian unity, is being open and honest with one another whenever you think someone's wronged you. And why do we do this? Because we're members of one another. For so many people, for so many Christians in so many churches, what we do is we lie to one another, we're hateful to one another, and it's essentially taking our toe and slamming it in a door. Have you, anybody ever like, caught a toe in a door? Like a car door? I've done that before, and it's, it's gruesome. Okay, I should, I'll leave it at that. It's gruesome. Okay, it's not fun. And it's doing that, and we do it over and over and over again, and we wonder why we're in pain. And we say, why do we feel this way? Why are we hurting as a church? Why isn't God blessing us? Well, it's because we're not speaking the truth, at least not in love. We're lying. We're not understanding that people are members one of another, that we together make up one body. And when we hurt one part, we hurt all parts. The second thing, verse 26, he says, Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. So he says, be angry. Don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. And don't give the devil an opportunity. It's possible, church, to be angry and to not sin. But I'm going to tell you something. It's a small little window that makes up that place. To be angry and to not sin. Because if you're angry just because you're not getting your way in some situation, if you think someone has wronged you, Sometimes it's right, okay to be angry in those situations. The question is, can you stay in that place? The question you should always ask when you find yourself in a place of anger is this. Am I angry for the right reasons? We see Jesus in the temple, and he's angry. I mean, that, I don't think that's the word that's used, but if you're flipping over tables and making a whip out of cords and driving people out, are you probably angry? I've never seen anybody do that with a smile on their face. Right? I've actually never seen anybody do that, period. But that's beside the point. He was probably angry. But what was he angry over? His father's glory. His father's truth. The fact that people were being mistreated there in the temple. The Gentiles were not being treated right. The people were taking the temple and making it something for their own gain. The question you should always ask is this. Is my anger for the right reasons? And is it dealt with immediately and properly? 
That's what he says, right? Angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. That's hard sometimes, right? Because you know that if you can just get to bed, if you're fighting with your spouse, if I can just get to bed and not talk to him about it, we'll wake up in the morning and pretend like it never happened. But here's the thing. Did you actually deal with your anger? No. You just let it kind of float away as you slept. You woke up in a better mood, right? But that anger, whatever was at the root, the selfishness is at the root of that argument and that frustration, it didn't get dealt with. Church, we should deal with our anger immediately and properly and understand that it needs to be for the right reasons. Because when we do that, what we don't do is give Satan an opportunity. Satan is described in God's word as a fierce roaring lion seeking one to devour. And hear this, church, he wants to devour God's people. That doesn't mean he can steal our salvation or anything like that, but what it does mean is that he can devour any effectiveness that we have for gospel ministry. And he would love to find an opportunity to do that for you and for me and for this church. And when anger and frustrations are not dealt with, when we go to someone, we're allowing Satan, this lion, to rip us apart limb from limb. Verse 28, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he's to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. The thief goes around stealing money, stealing goods, right? But sometimes you can be a thief of other things, like time. You can steal time from yourself, right? And laziness and just sitting around doing nothing. And that's not saying don't rest sometimes. But you can steal joy from other people. You can cheat others in a number of ways. But he says this, don't do that, but instead do honest work with your hands. Does that mean everybody has to go into carpentry to do what he's saying here? No. He's saying do honest work. And here's the reason why. So that you can share with anyone who is in need. Church, we don't, we don't take what God has given us, what we have earned, and stored up for ourselves, right? If we see and we look at any kind of literature, that is so often, I get the, the image and the picture of a dragon who sits, and if you ever read fairy tales, who sits on their pile of gold and guards it. But that's not why we do work. We do it so that we can share with anyone who is in need. What we do in this life is not for us. What we make in this life is not for us. 29, no foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that it gives grace to those who hear. Underneath this idea of foul language is like rotten, decaying. Okay, If you've ever had um, a bag of trash that you leave in the trash can and you forget to take it out before you go on vacation and you come back, it's foul, it's rotten, it's nasty, Right? That's what he's talking about here. Language that is like that. Now here's the thing. And a lot of us like to make excuses for it and we, we kind of brush it off, but we know what kind of language this is. Is it words that we would call curse words today? Yeah, probably. It, it at least includes that. Could it include taking God's name in vain? Saying Jesus when we're not talking to him or about him, but just saying it when we're exasperated or upset or angry? Yeah, maybe. Could it include obscene and crude jokes, like in chapter 5, verse 4, just maybe on the next page for you. 
Yeah, absolutely. It includes all things, all ways of talking that are abusive and that are not for building one another up. Because that's what he says in verse 29. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up someone in need so that, so that it gives grace to those who hear. Church, for a lot of us, maybe we feel good because we've perfected the art of not letting the four-letter words slip, right? It's been a long time since you said, since you said Jesus' name or you said God in a way that wasn't in prayer or reading the Bible or something like that. But that's not all, all that he's talking about here. He's talking about any kind of language that doesn't build up one another, that isn't good for when someone's in need, that doesn't give grace to those who hear. Church, sarcasm could very well fall into this. And a lot of us, like, it's like we're an Olympic sport, right? Like, like we're just working at sarcasm all the time. And it's kind of fun to do right and to jab at each other. And maybe there's a time for that. But we have to understand something. Is our speech more often than not marked by building one another up? Or is it more often than not marked by tearing one another down? Doesn't mean you can't joke with your friends. The question is, how is it marked? He talks about grieving the Holy Spirit, and we're going to come back to that in just one moment. I want to get to the next 31 here. Let all bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Instead of going through every single one of these words, bitterness, anger, wrath, shouting, slander, and, and defining them for us, that's one thing about this, bitterness. This is a continual harsh feeling towards others, right? And that bitterness often comes out in anger and this wrath, this manifestation of anger, and maybe even shouting at one another and slander whenever we talk down about that person who we feel a bitterness towards and malice, which is a, de- a desire to do evil towards someone. And we talk about someone in such a way that we hope that they will be thought of more poorly among the church, among the community, among anyone. He says, do not do this, but be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. There are times whenever backbiting and bitterness and malice and slander and all that just comes from nowhere. Yeah, sometimes. But a lot of times it comes from a perceived slight. When you think that someone said something bad about you, and you feel, and I feel, finger at me, I feel like I got to do something say something, make some jab, say some little thing to take them down a notch. But what does Paul say here? Instead, be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. That is the exact opposite of what we often want to do, is it not? When someone wrongs us, you say, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. And I've heard it from so many Christians, and, and, and it worries me. And I'm not saying I perfected it, but I'm just saying, that I hear so many Christians say, well, you know, I'll try to forgive them, but I just don't think that I can or I will. You have to understand something. I don't have the verse on hand. But Jesus says, if you won't forgive others, he won't forgive you. And if we're unwilling to forgive, that should terrify you, that your heart is in such a place. And it's one thing to say, I'm going to try to forgive this person, but it's very hard to do it. And it's another thing, church, to say, I refuse to do it. It should terrify us when that's the case. All of these things, if we don't stop doing the bad part of them and start doing the good part of them, 
it grieves the Holy Spirit. I want you to imagine that for a minute. Just an idea of grieving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one of the persons of the Godhead. He is God himself. P.T. O'Brien in the Pillar New Testament commentary says this, The Spirit is grieved when God's people continue in any of the sins that divide and destroy the unity of the body. Can you imagine that for a minute? It's one thing to think that maybe God's disappointed in you. right? Like you probably feel that way, right? I did this, I messed up. God's probably disappointed in me. It's another thing to imagine that through the actions that we take, the Holy Spirit is grieved. When you think about grieving, think about what that means. Imagine someone grieving at a funeral. Imagine the intensity of that emotion that's felt there. And that's the reaction of the Holy Spirit. When for us, we lie. When we're angry, we don't deal with it rightly. When we steal and do things for ourselves. When we use foul language that's not for building up. When we backbite one another and are bitter and angry and wrathful and, and slanderous and malicious. It grieves the Holy Spirit. The question is this, why would we ever want to do that? Because the Spirit looks and He sees the church, the bride of Christ, and He sees us behaving in this way, and it grieves Him. The question for us, church, is this, do we know? Do we understand? And if we understand, do we care that when we do these things, that we are grieving the Holy Spirit? But why do we even do these things? Why is this a struggle? Why is this a frustration? Why does this keep happening? Because so often, we haven't taken the old self and put it off and put on Christ. Our solution to all of these things, church, is not just to, to buckle down and say, well, I'm going to try harder. In some sense, it is. I fear that so often in the church, we make such a thing of grace and grace, I mean, like, that's one of the five solas of the Reformation. That's part of being Protestant, is that grace alone is how we are saved, not through works. But so often we go so far to the other side that we say, well, God will forgive me. And it's true that he will forgive us. But we say, God will forgive me, therefore I can do whatever I want. God says, I forgive you, not be like Christ. I forgive you. I give you grace when you mess up. But be imitators of me. Chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says this, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and walk in love as Christ also loved us and gave himself for us, a sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. What is our solution? What does it look like to do this rightly? It's to imitate Christ to aim and strive for Christ-likeness. And what does Christ-likeness look like? Simply put, it's to walk in love. To walk in love the way Christ loved us and gave himself for us. The opposite of love isn't necessarily hate. There's cases in which that, that is the case, right? Like the emotional side of love, I feel love for you or I feel hate for you. But if you've ever been in love with someone and then fallen out of love with them, you maybe understand, maybe they fell out of love with you. Maybe they left you. Maybe whatever it is. And that can, I mean, leave you in any sense of the word. The love, the opposite of love is hate, but maybe the better way to say it is the opposite of love is self Centeredness. 
Because love says, I'm about you. And self-centeredness says, I'm about me. And according to Philippians 2, Christ gave up his rights as son, and he came and he gave himself for us. Church, God has called us to sacrifice ourselves for one another. Not just for this church as a whole, though certainly that is the case, for this institution that is Pleasant Gardens Baptist Church, we are to sacrifice our time, our talent, our treasure, our desires. But it's also a sacrifice of ourselves for each individual that makes up this church. Does that mean you have to be best friends with every single person in this church? Does that mean you have to be willing to sacrifice yourself for the good of this church and for each individual that makes it up? Yeah, it does. I want you to consider the ways that maybe you have sacrificed for this church, for the institution as a whole, or for the individuals who make it up. And those things are kind of, you can't pull them apart. But I want you to think about how you have sacrificed and the ways that you haven't sacrificed. Maybe for you, you've sacrificed your time. There's some of you in here and I'm not thinking anybody in particular, there's some of you in here who sacrifice a lot of time for this church. And there's some of you in here who don't sacrifice a lot of time for this church. There's some of you who sacrifice a lot of money to keep this church going. There's some that don't. Whatever it is, you can fill in the blank of folks who sacrifice a ton and folks who sacrifice not much. The question is this, and I think it all has to come down to this. These other things, time, money, effort, whatever, flows out of the fact, out of the question of have you sacrificed your own desires? That is the true question at the heart of all of this. Because see, Jesus could have sat in heaven and said, well, I gave him a chance, I gave him a shot, they messed it up, tough. But church, aren't you glad that he didn't? His own desires could have been selfish and self-centered. But here's the thing. Because he is God, when he does that and he says, I'm about myself, is that actually being selfish the way that we're selfish? No. He has every right to say, hey, guess what? I can do whatever I want. Tough for y'all. But he didn't. He gave up his own desires to do, to, to, of self-preservation and was willing to come and give himself on the cross for you and for me. Church, have you sacrificed your own desires? for the individuals and for the institution of Pleasant Gardens Baptist Church? Have you sacrificed your own desires to do things your own way, whatever that way is, whatever it can be? Have you sacrificed those own desires to say, whatever is good for this church, I will do? Have you sacrificed your own desires to make those who you disagree with look worse to get your way? Have you sacrificed your desires to come out on top? Have you sacrificed your desires to make your involvement here as easy and as stress-free and as non-sacrificial as possible? Have you sacrificed those desires, whatever they are? When we don't sacrifice our own desires for the good of fellow Christians, especially in our own church, we aren't loving like Christ loved because we're not giving ourselves for others. And here's what you have to understand. Where all these things come down, and we can so often look at these things and say, yeah, I know that I shouldn't do these things, but did you hear what they said about me? Yeah, I know I probably shouldn't do these things, but did you see what they did? We have to understand that if Christ can come and die for a sinner like you, 
why can't you die to yourself for someone who is just as sinful as you are? He had no sin, but he died for us. You have all kinds of sin to speak of. It's been handled by Christ, but you know what kind of person you are and you have been. And you look at that person that upsets you and you say, wow, they're no worse than I am. They might even be better. Hopefully, like Paul, you're coming to a place where you say that you're the chief of sinners and you understand that your own sin is, in your eyes, hopefully worse than anyone else's. Church, understand this. that We can sacrifice every waking minute of our time, every penny of our money, every bit of work to fix this place up as good as that is. But if we don't sacrifice our desire to lie to and about one another, to be angry at one another, to, to take from one another of joy and time and reputation. If we don't do those things, all the money we give, all the time that we spend, all the effort that we put in, it doesn't matter. If you don't sacrifice your right to be angry, the so-called right to be angry, it doesn't matter. If you don't sacrifice your right to steal and be all about yourself, and to not share with others, it doesn't matter. You don't sacrifice your right to talk the way that you want, then all the sacrificing of time and money and effort and whatever it is, fill in the blank, it won't matter. Because for us, we will not be like Christ, and we cannot be called Christians if we are not aiming to live like Christ. We know we're going to mess up. The question is, are we aiming to be like Christ? Jesus. Our last few thoughts here in chapter 5, verses 3 through 5, and it's a quick warning. It won't matter because it will be for nothing. Here's what he says. But sexually, sexual immorality and all impurity or greed should not be even heard among you as is proper for saints. Obscene and foolish talking or crude joking are not suitable, but rather giving thanks. For no one recognized this. Every sexually immoral or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Now this certainly is about those specific things, but it's not about those specific things. He's saying this, if Christ has not been put on, if the old man has not been put off and Christ has not been put on, what it may very well mean is that you do not have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. And I take no joy in telling you that. Besides the fact that my hope is that if that's the case, that you will come to your senses and realize that God is calling you to repentance. Everyone who does these things, all that we've talked about today, unrepentantly, without caring what it does to Christ's body, he says you don't have an inheritance in the kingdom of God. There's nothing there for you waiting because that's not what your eternity is. If you haven't put on Christ's likeness, it may very well mean that you haven't learned Christ, as he said at the beginning of this passage. So church, with our last few minutes here, I want to encourage you that if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, and you understand that maybe you're struggling with these things, that for you, you're choosing these things more often than not, my encouragement is that you would repent and you would continue repenting. And you would understand that you're going to have to repent of these things forever. 
not forever, as long as we live on this earth and in this body. You have to keep going to God and saying, God, I keep getting angry. Help me by your spirit to not do it anymore for the good of your church and your people who you love. God, I struggle with telling people the truth. I struggle with foul language that doesn't build up but instead tears down. I struggle with slander and bitterness towards people who frustrate me and anger. God, help me. Church, my encouragement to you is that you would repent of that. But if you're here this morning and you understand, you look at this and you say, I've never had any kind of desire in my heart to do those things, to put off sin and put on Christ-likeness. Even if you walked an aisle one time and signed a card, and even if you got dunked, baptism is what I'm talking about there, if you got dunked, you would understand. That may very well mean that you're not a Christian. If you've never had those desires, if God has never changed your desires, if you don't have a new way of thinking, it may mean that you're still spiritually a Gentile who is futile in your thinking, you're darkened in your understanding, and you're excluded from the life of God. And if that's you, my encouragement is that you would trust in Christ who died to pay the penalty for your sin, because that's what happens whenever you sin, is that God requires death to pay it. But he sent Christ to die on your behalf. And my encouragement, my hope, my pleading with you is this, that you would repent, that you would put your faith in Christ. You put your faith in him giving himself for you and ask him to help you now give yourself for others. Let's pray and ask God to do this in our hearts. Heavenly Father, we know that, as we've read this morning, this is something that's heavy, God. We know that even as Christians, we're going to struggle with these things because we remain in the flesh until the day that we go to be with you in heaven or that you return. But Lord, for us who are Christians, who are truly following you, Lord, empower us by your Holy Spirit to do these things and to do them rightly. To love each other more than we love ourselves. To love your people more than we love ourselves. And for the person here this morning who understands that they have never, ever had a change of thinking, a change of heart, a change of desire. They've never submitted themselves to Christ as their king who can tell them that you should do these things and they should say, yes, I I should. Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you bring them to life now? Would you give them the gift of faith, Lord? Would you help them understand that they need to repent of their sin and trust in you? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.